Good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, those of you here in the room, those of you online, good to be with you. We are in a couple different locations, but we worship together as one family, and we're so blessed by that. Hey, uh, one more thing to have on your radar that's coming up. So in, I guess it's three weeks, October 23rd, uh, we're going to be doing baptisms that Sunday. So uh, right where I'm standing will be a large tub of water. Uh, I will be standing in that tub of water. Uh, as, as well as others, but baptisms on October 23rd, so look forward to that. And if you have not been baptized, if you are a follower of Jesus and you haven't taken sort of that initial step of obedience, of identifying with Jesus in the waters of baptism, uh, grab me afterwards, come talk to me about that. We would love to baptize you on the 23rd. So that is coming, and we are stoked for that. Uh, this morning, we are going to be continuing our series uh, about American idols, and, um, and here's, here's a thought as we get into it this morning. So, uh, there's a respected physician in New York City named Dr. John Gerdner, and he, he had this observation. He noted how routine it was becoming for him in his practice to have patients with a host of illnesses and different conditions that all seemed to be brought on in some way or another by living in a perpetual state of hurry. He coined a term for this. He called it New Yorkitis, right? And not that it was limited to New York, but that's where he was. And, you know, it's, it's a, a big, bustling city where you'd see this. But he, he noted that this condition was causing for a lot of people anxiety, depression, edginess, burnout, and inability to enjoy life. And then subsequently, as a result of that, an obsession with finding always new things to stimulate and entertain. Uh, also, he noticed these folks had a tendency to interact only with the like-minded. And this led to some arrogance on their part and a little overconfidence in their ability to know and to know more than others and even to have some contempt for others who maybe didn't uh, see the world quite the way that they did. So, any of this sound at all familiar to you? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, this doctor coined this term and wrote his book about it in the year 1901. This is before the internet. This is before uh, smartphones. This is before air travel. This is before fast cars. 1901. He was diagnosing as best he could what today some doctors and some mental health professionals refer to as hurry sickness. Uh, you know, how bad is it now? Gosh, who knows? Well, we all know. It's bad. If we stop long enough from hurrying to think about it, we know that this is a problem today, too. So the series that we're in right now, it's called American Idols, and uh, we've noted here that an idol, kind of our shorthand definition for this, this comes from Timothy Keller, an idol is a good thing that has been made into an ultimate and as Americans, we're asking the question, as Americans, what are those things that we are most prone to making into idols? What are those good things in our society that we might be most inclined to make into an ultimate thing and bring them from a place of goodness and gift to a place of harm, where they become an object of worship for us and actually become a barrier between us and God? Uh, so, so far in our series, we've covered freedom. We've covered money. That's a big one. Today... Uh, the idol that we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to call it the idol of bigger, faster, more, right? Think of it as all big, one big word, 
bigger, faster, more, BFM, if you will, because it takes too long to say all those syllables, so we have to shorten it, because this is what we do. Bigger, faster, more. Uh, and we could assign any number of names to this, but uh, it is the tendency in our society, and we're all familiar with it, it's a way that we assign worth and assign value. If something is good, the way that we make it better is, well, we go bigger, or we go faster, or we just have more of that thing. Uh, so, you know, examples abound, but you, you, have a, you have a business, and it's feeding the family, and this is a good thing, and the question that others pose to you are, oh, well, how are you going to grow it? How will you make your business bigger? Or maybe somehow, by a miraculous act of God, you managed to buy a house in Los Angeles County. And you kind of sheepishly say, well, it's kind of a starter house. And at some point, we'll upgrade, and it will be bigger, right? Or uh, we, uh, uh, you know, we're always thinking, how do we make something faster? How do we make it more efficient so I have more time? to spend with other people, uh, or just, you know, just more. If a little is good, then obviously more is better. This is the goofiest example, but I was thinking, gosh, like this is our society in a nutshell. So when I was a kid, you, you would go to 7-Eleven and you would get a can of Coke, 12 ounces of Coca-Cola. And it was great, and it was kind of, it was kind of a treat, right? Uh, well, then they, they had the soda fountain. And you could get not only 12 ounces of Coca-Cola, but you could actually get 16 ounces of Coca-Cola. That is four extra ounces of liquid sugar for my nine-year-old body, right? How excited was I about this? But then the world totally changed because 7-Eleven, in their genius, in their wisdom, introduced this product known as the, of course, the Big Gulp. And it was huge, 32 ounces of soda. What could be better than this? Well, you know what's better than this. The super big gulp, which came a couple years later, 44 ounces. And then, because you got to do it, and I think they were in a race with Circle K and AMPM at the time to see who could have the biggest portions, they had the double big gulp. 64 ounces of liquid diabetes right there at your fingertips, and man, as many of these as you could put down. But, but why would you do anything else? Because if this much is good, then of course, more is going to be better. Now, hear this part. So I've got to throw in a caveat, right? So who doesn't like a bigger house, or a faster car, or a more efficient way to do your work, or a little more of something that is good? Listen, just because it's bigger or faster or more, it doesn't automatically mean that it's an idol. But this obsession with bigger and faster and more can, in fact, become that. When it becomes an ultimate thing, it can become extremely detrimental to us. A couple of stats for you. Just take this in. So new homes that are being built today are 74% bigger than homes that they were making a century ago. Now, along with that, and maybe this is part of where the idol has ensnared us a bit, uh, it also, for the average family, takes well over 50% of their income to live in one of those houses. And folks are priced out of the market left and right 
as a result of that. Uh, or, or this, I mean, we have, we have more time-saving gadgets, devices, apps, everything than we ever have in human history. But interestingly, is that family, or is, is that time uh, working for us to spend more time with family and use our time in ways that brings more leisure? It's not. We're busier than we ever have been. In the last 30 years, the average amount of time worked by a working person is 11% more than before we had all of these time-saving gadgets. Uh, and, you know, obviously, like, who doesn't want a little more money or whatever, but uh, sometimes the price that we pay for that is too much. Or think about the, the, uh, the wealth of opportunities that we have for our kids now. Right? When I was a kid, there were a few after-school kind of options that were out there. Now it, it is a plethora. And it's so difficult as a parent not to put your child in each and every one of those because you want them exposed to everything. But mental health professionals who work with kids tell us that our kids are more stressed out than kids of the last generation. They have less time for play. They are socially inept compared to their peers of 10, 20, 30 years ago. They have very little in terms of conflict resolution skills. We have taken so much uh, that was sort of natural to growing up as a kid and replaced it with bigger, faster, more, often to our detriment. Now, we've, we've noted this too, and think about how this applies here. So how do idols typically work? Where do they get their power? Well, the Bible describes it as the world, the flesh, and the devil. We would summarize it this way, that how idols work is typically it starts with a deceptive idea that appeals to a disordered desire, our flesh, and then becomes normalized in society, the world, to the point where we don't even notice it. It's just the way things are. And I think we all could be forgiven for thinking that bigger, faster, more is just the way things are. It's just the way that the world works. But it hasn't always been that way. Even in America, it hasn't always been that way. So much of our thinking here has been shaped, and we don't even know what it was shaped by, but it was shaped 100 years ago by the Industrial Revolution, by Henry Ford, uh, by the assembly line, by these, these technological innovations that allowed us to change the way that we work. Uh, prior to that, uh, think about it this way. Prior to that, if your job was being a furniture maker, the way that you, you judged yourself, the way that others judged you, the way that you would succeed in business was not by how many chairs you could churn out. It was a matter of quality. Can I produce a chair that is so beautiful and so well-built that this family might pass it on to their children and they might pass it on to their children? That was the measure. That was how you measured your worth. That was how you had a successful business. If you could do that, you were the one, and everybody, they would come to you. But on this side of the Industrial Revolution, and a lot of good came from the Industrial Revolution, but one of the things that was not is it started to embed in us this bigger, faster, more. Well, maybe I don't have to make the chair quite as well, because I can make 100 of them in the time that I make the wine. And so I actually make more money doing it that way. And, 
and as, as this kind of grew and morphed and whatnot, and you know, now we're in the land of Ikea where you know, half the furniture that I own I put together with little pegs and reading instructions that has no words on it because it's made by Swedes on the other side of the world and this and that. Uh, but uh, along that path, uh, think about this too. Uh, a thing came into manufacturing called planned obsolescence where the idea is if that chair that you are buying, if it doesn't wear out at some point, well, that means you won't buy another. And how am I going to make money if you don't keep buying the chair over and over again? You know, my grandparents, uh, I grew up uh, uh, always around my grandparents, and they had the same refrigerator from the time before I was born until the time that I was out of college and until they passed away. Their refrigerator literally outlived them. Since my kids were born, we've had three. Right? There, there's a difference in our mindset. And this affects the way that we live. Bigger, faster, and more has become so ordinary that we don't really think about it. But friends, what if? What if, bigger, faster, more, instead of making life better, actually puts us in a place of perpetual discontent. Where we struggle to enjoy that thing that is in front of us now, because it could be bigger, it could be faster, it could be more of that thing. What if faster doesn't actually mean I have more time? What if faster actually ends up meaning that I am perpetually exhausted? because I don't even know what it is to slow down anymore. And what if more means that you and I just become professional consumers, where our lives are defined by shopping, and our happiness is defined by what it is that we acquire. And what about this? What if bigger, faster, more actually harms your relationship with God and with other people. Uh, and uh, I would suggest, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time here, but I would suggest that it does. And that the bigger, faster, more ends up enslaving us precisely because it cuts against certain things that are part of reality. And anytime we, we bump into reality, Stallis Willard says, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. Anytime you bump into reality and you try to fight that, we find ourselves in a place of continued tension. So, uh, here's a couple of those realities. It's not possible to be present to the person in front of you if you're focused on the many. It's not possible to love God or to love other people in a hurry. It's a contradiction in terms. It's not possible to savor now while you are simultaneously focused on acquiring more. Consequently, when that's the place we're in, when this idol is owning our hearts, consequently, we miss so much of what's actually most important in life. Loving God, loving people, and being part of God's beautiful plans for this world that he loves. So here's our aim. 
here's where we're going this morning. Instead, we're going to focus on learning from Jesus how to be fully present to God and fully present to others. Right? And how do we do this? Right? The world's not going to get any less busy. And you and I aren't going to move into a monastery anytime soon. How do we do this? We learn from Jesus the unhurried rhythms of a life that is lived present to God and present to people. We're going to look at a couple episodes from the life of Jesus, and then we'll conclude with three spiritual disciplines, three practices that Jesus actually employed himself uh, that help us to become the kind of people who can live presently to God and to others. Let's pray, and we'll look at the scriptures. Father, we give you thanks. You are the God of all wisdom. Lord, that though we never stop making plans for how to make our lives work, that you actually know. We thank you that we don't have to figure it out, that you have gone before us, that you are a creator, that you are a sustainer, that you know. And God, that you love us enough to lead us in your way. So we just ask you for that today. And God, wherever each of us is at with you and our journey towards Jesus, we pray that you would meet us right there and that you'd help us take a, another step closer. And we trust you for this, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends. So, Jesus was fully present to God. So this is from Mark chapter 1. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now pause there. So they're in Capernaum. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. They're in the synagogue. Jesus is giving a Bible lesson there. And they get done, and they go to crash at Peter's house, to crash with Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick. He heals her. She starts to wait on them, right? Good mom here. This would be my mom in this moment, too. I feel so much better. Let me make you boys a sandwich, right? So this is what's happening. And then, before long, the whole town knows. It says the whole town shows up at the door. This huge crowd of people is there. And late into the night, Jesus is healing them. Now, catch what happens next. So the next morning, the disciples are like, where is Jesus? And in Luke's account of this, he adds that the crowds were too. Everybody's like, where's Jesus? This is going great. We want more of this thing. Check it out. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Right? So Simon and the boys, they're like, we did it. You know, success. We're here to do ministry. And there's all these people, the whole town. You know, we've won. We're viral. Let's set up shop right here. 
right? This is where we'll establish it. We'll do a TV station, great. We'll have Jesus, you sit in like this throne, it'll be awesome, all the things. Jesus, though, Jesus says, no, that's not the mission. We're not to stay here. The Father is calling us to go elsewhere, to do this elsewhere as well. How did Jesus have clarity? How did he know that? How in the midst of the world's applause, is there anything more intoxicating than that? How in the midst of the world's applause did he know, no, the Father wants me to do this? Jesus left the many to be with the one. And in that, he gained clarity. He heard what he needed to hear as he's with the Father and continues doing the Father's will. This is not an anomaly, by the way. If you've read in the Gospels very much, you've seen this. But no less than two dozen verses talk about how Jesus would intentionally and regularly seek out quiet time with the Father. He would do this before seasons of intense ministry. He would do this after seasons of intense ministry. When he's in the midst of ministry, he would stop and pray in the midst of that. Uh, Seasonally, he would go to the temple and be part of the worship activities there. Weekly, he would be at the synagogue worshiping and reading the scriptures with his fellow countrymen. Uh, Luke says this was his custom. Jesus was in the regular habit of making time and space to be present with the Father. So uh, Fridays, Fridays are my Sabbath, Fridays are are my day off, Uh, Saturdays are uh, hopefully a day off too, but Friday is kind of a fixed point. Uh, Fridays are also Samantha's day off. And so uh, frequently on Fridays, sometimes we'll we'll get a walk in the morning after kids are dropped off at school and such. And I will find that very frequently we'll be walking together and two, three, sometimes four times, Samantha will have to put her hand on my arm and say, slow down. This isn't an exercise walk. We're strolling, we're talking. And I'll be like, that's right, that's right. Gotta slow it down. And not that you can't have a good conversation with your friend or your spouse as you're walking briskly, but uh, I'll tell you, there is, there is something about slowing down that helps me be more present. Right? You can't love in a hurry. You can't listen in a hurry. You ever try that one? You can't listen while thinking about the thing you're going to say next. Everything has to slow down. And friends, it's the same thing in our relationship with God. Or as the scriptures over and over again puts it, our walk with God. Uh, There's a Japanese theologian. uh, His name is Kasuki Koyama. He wrote a book called Three Mile Per Hour God. And the thesis of the book is this. Three miles per hour is is the average uh, leisurely walking speed of people who aren't in a hurry three miles per hour. And this theologian's thesis is if you want to walk closely with God, you've got to slow down to walking pace. Stop trying to love God in haste. Three miles per hour. Slower down. Uh, Friends, what about you? Give yourself an honest assessment 
in this moment on how you do it, creating space to slow down and to be present to God. And when, when you do actually do this, how often does it happen? Right? Once a month, once a week, once a day, several times a day, if you're like a spiritual ninja, where are you at in this? <laughs> Slowing down, essential to us walking well with God. Dallas Willard says this, and it, it always blows me away of all the things he could pick, but he says, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. And his counsel to those who would seek to follow Jesus well, he says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's one. Jesus was fully present to God. Not only that, and in fact, we could say in large part because of that, Jesus was fully present to others as well. We're going to flip over to Luke chapter 8. It says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, pause. You see that? A crowd welcomed him. But Jesus sees the one, Jairus. That was the one he was to focus on in that moment. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. So you see that again? Again, the crowds. Crowds such that he's being crushed by the mass of humanity that is around him. But he feels one person. Who touched me? He knows inside of this, inside of the crowd, something there happened. Uh, and, and I love this too. Peter, Peter's in a different place, right? Perhaps in a little more place of bigger, faster, more. And Peter's like, Jesus, everyone is touching you, right? Classic Peter moment. What are you talking about, Jesus? Everyone is touching you. And he's like, no, no, no. One touched me. Who is that one? The crowds sort of disappear for Jesus. And the one is what shows up. Is able to be present to the one. Verse 47, it says, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Right now, there's people everywhere. But he sees her. He feels the pain she's been living under. The loneliness, the isolation that would have been a part of this condition that she had as well. He sees her and calls her daughter. Friend, do you believe that Jesus sees you? That you are not just part of a crowd, but that you are one? That Jesus sees you 
that he understands your pain, that he understands your loneliness, that he understands your particular struggles. He sees you. He calls you daughter. He calls you son. He sees you. Can you receive that you are loved that much by God? That God did not just come to save the world in the abstract, but you in particular. You are loved by God. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. So while Jesus was was the one, the other one pops back up on the radar here. And now he's back to this one. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Friends, one of the most remarkable things about Jesus is that he was always busy but never in a hurry. Somehow in the midst of a life that was every bit as busy, perhaps more so than yours and mine, He was able to be present to God. He was able to be present to others. Uh, For Jesus, a crowd was never the goal. And this is odd for us a little bit, and I I think it is a little bit because of our mindset as those who have taken in bigger, faster, more along with the air that we breathe. But for Jesus, a crowd was never the goal. Right? He spent time teaching the crowd, feeding the crowd, healing the crowd. But he also spent a lot of time avoiding the crowd sometimes deliberately scaring the crowd away, right? Saying things like, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And people are like, what? Let's find a different Messiah. This guy is weird. Telling people, of course you can follow me. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to die to your flesh. People are like, hmm, maybe. Or maybe not, right? Telling people, well, the, the path to life is narrow. People are like, oh. Let me find a rabbi who's got a wider path. He wasn't troubled by people leaving. Jesus, he loves the crowd. He cares about the crowd. But he loves people in the crowd one at a time. Uh, In our small group, we're, we're reading a wonderful book called One at a Time by Kyle Eidelman. He writes this. He says, Jesus loves everyone in the crowd, but the way he loves them is one at a time. One is the way of Jesus being present to God, being present to others. And do you remember the teaching on the mustard seed? And this, counterintuitively, is how the kingdom grows. It's not mass-produced like cars off an assembly line. It's Jesus meeting each of us, us apprenticing ourselves to him and learning from him how to live our lives the way that he would live them. One at a time. Now, practices. Let's pivot over to how for a few minutes here. If, if we are going to live in the way of Jesus, we need to learn from him how to live as he did. 
I want to give you three practices this morning. Uh, these are practices you can do at home. You need not relocate to a monastery. This is, this is real life for real people who have real jobs and live in the real world. Here we go. First is this. It is the slow reading of scripture. The slow reading of scripture. Shout out to the 40-ish of you who are doing the Matthew reading plan as we go through this study. So stoked to see you guys in the app every morning. Uh, many of you comment, many of you don't as well, but it's awesome just to see the comments on the text that we're all collectively reading. Uh, but here's the thing. Think about this. What if you could have an insight from God to guide you through that particular day every day? Friends, the absolute truth is that you can. That in fact, Jesus invites us to that. To come to him every day and to receive a word from him in that day. And I promise you this, if you do this on the regular, if you give yourself over to the slow reading of scripture as a regular daily practice, you will find that over time, your mind is renewed, your heart is transformed, your affections are reordered, and receiving guidance from God in the context of your normal, working, everyday life will become natural and normal. The slow reading of Scripture. Uh, the Bible commends this practice to us from beginning to end. Jesus was explicitly given to this practice of the slow reading of Scripture. And the way you do this, it, I mean, it can't be any simpler. It's just what it sounds like. But I, I would say this to you. Uh, if you're trying to do this, don't go for quantity. Go for quality. Take whatever time that you have, right? Maybe you've got 10 minutes to give to this. Perfect. Give it 10 minutes. Maybe you've got 20. Maybe you've got 40. It doesn't matter. Whatever time you have, slow down, prayerfully read the scriptures, and as God starts to speak to you, then stop and talk to God about what he is saying to you. If, if you're inclined to journal, it's a good time to make a note, right? Capture that thing and pray that Jesus helps you live into that thing. Don't overcomplicate this, friends. It's about showing up more than anything else. Just being in the habit of being present and letting God speak to you in the context of that presence. In any given day, it may or may not feel like a lot. Day after day, week after week, year after year, you will become an entirely different person. No joke. A slow reading of scripture. Number two. Number two is Sabbath keeping. Right? And think about this. I mean this really seriously, but what if I told you you don't have to live in a state of perpetual exhaustion? That that kind of living is actually optional. Uh, that is absolutely true. But you have to learn it, especially when the culture around you is perpetually discipling you in the ways of bigger, faster, more. You have to resist that. It requires a counter-cultural practice to follow a way that's different 
and what the world around us is teaching us is normal. Sabbath keeping uh, has been the norm for the people of God since the time of Moses. Uh, now Eugene Peterson, he summarizes how you keep the Sabbath, this wonderful little phrase, pray and play. That's it. it means block out your Sundays and say this is a time when I'm going to take some time to be with God. I'm going to go and worship with the people of God. I'm going to be nourished through word and sacrament. I'm going to worship in song and prayer and fellowship. And I'm going to play. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to play some softball. I'm going to be with family. I'm going to have dinner with a friend that I like. I'm going to drink a nicer wine than I do today because it's the Sabbath and I'm celebrating the goodness of God. That one's autobiographical. <laughs> Don't overcomplicate this one either, friends. It, it, it is in, um, I'm going to quote a guy and I'm not going to remember what his name is. It will come to me later and I'll just shout it out. But in sanctuary, you create a tabernacle in space and time in which to meet God. We create a space. Now here's where we get trapped, right? We hear Sabbath and we go, that sounds like a marvelous idea. I can even see how that would be very helpful in forming me in a different sort of way, but I'm much too busy to practice Sabbath. And that's true, which is why you have to practice Sabbath. It's one of those things where like, you know, they say if we waited to have kids until we were ready to have kids, no one would have kids, the human race would die out. Absolutely true. You kind of just have to dive in do this with Sabbath, too. E even if you can't do a full day Sabbath yet, dive in and do what you can. The reality is, as you begin to practice this and it begins to change you, all of a sudden, you start to realize in a deeper way, I can't say yes to everything I want to say yes to and still live this way. And you start to develop discernment say, this is more important, this is more important, this may be a little less. Or this is great, but it's not great in the season. You begin to develop a lightness in your being, where Sabbath is something that you crave. In the beginning, don't be surprised if it's very stressful to practice Sabbath, because you're thinking, I've got to answer those emails, I've got to do that project, I have to mow the lawn, the sink has a drip, all these things. Find another time to do those things. Make a sanctuary in space and time, where you can just be present to God and devote a day to pray and play. That's all. Right? We sometimes marvel at the, the enormous amount of ink in the Old Testament given to what you cannot do on the Sabbath, and we're like, wow, they are such a bunch of crazy legalists. What the heck? But actually, they're genius. They knew we have to have this kind of detailed instruction about what not to do, or people will find a way to do it because we can't sit still. Keeping the Sabbath. This is a crucial, a critical spiritual discipline for 21st century people. Last one. Last one, okay. Again, dream with me here. What if your life could look a bit more like the book of Acts? Like a daily adventure of being used by God for his purposes. To bless people. Or bear witness to Jesus, to others to declare the goodness of God to those around you. This too 
is something that Jesus wants for us. Uh, third practice is this, it's pray for divine appointments. And divine appointments is just kind of a shorthand Samantha and I have used over the years for just praying that God will give open eyes to see the opportunities that he brings across our paths. And many years ago, this became part of my daily practice of prayer, just praying for divine appointments. God, I know you're working in the world around me. If you want to use me some way in this day, then do this thing. And it's amazing over the years how this has grown and how it has become very normal. And friends, usually it's small. It, it may be a word that you give to somebody, an encouragement, something you say to a coworker, something that um, you know, maybe witnessing to someone, maybe offering to pray for someone. Uh, it may be somebody that you live with, or you work with, or a friend, or it might be a stranger. But I guarantee you, if you are regularly praying for God to bring divine appointments into your life, he will. Uh, I'll, I'll give you one from, this is from my week. So, uh, I think it was on Tuesday. So I, I was traveling the first part of the week. Um, got to spend some time with some church planners in Chicago. And um, so Tuesday morning, uh, I got up early because my body didn't know what time it was anyway. So I was like, I'm awake. And so I uh, went to the gym and uh, dropped into a class. And, uh, and of course, you know, started the day praying as I always do. God, if there's somebody you want me to connect with today, then show me that. And uh, so we had the class. In the last 10, 15 minutes, the coach was like, hey, if you don't have to leave right away, go ahead and, and grab one of the weightlifting stations and gave us a little thing to do over there. And there were more people than there were stations. So I, I, was, I was done first, so I was at the station, and, and I'm looking around and felt a little Holy Spirit nudge that was like, oh, that guy. So I called over to this dude across the gym and was like, like hey, man, you want to share a station? And uh, he was like, sure. And so he comes and sits down, and we're, we're doing our thing. and. Um, you know, introduce ourselves and where you're from and all this stuff. And turns out we have like three mutual friends. And uh, we're talking and he starts opening up about how he's, he's a seminary dropout. And how he's kind of been doing the Jonah thing and running from God. And he actually, he ran to Taiwan. I mean, he ran hard away from what God was doing. And he's just coming back and he's trying to figure out what is it God's calling me to. And anyway, we had, we had a terrific conversation. I say conversation, but I said like this much. I mostly just listened. But it was totally 100% a God thing. Uh, and that was, that was kind of my thing for the day. Uh, now, it might, be, it might be weird to think this, and it's a little weird to say it, but I hope you know my heart in it, but I have these kinds of encounters regularly. They're not at all unusual, typically multiple times a week. Uh, the reason for that is not because I am super spiritual. The reason for that is that I regularly pray for divine appointments and have been doing it forever. It happens to me more today than it did five years ago. It happened more uh, five years ago than it did 10 years ago, more 10 years ago than it did 20 years ago. If you are faithful to be available, God will reward you with more opportunities to be available. It's just the way the kingdom economy works. 
Or sometimes folks will say to me, well, it's, it's because you're a pastor. And that's actually true. Uh, I have a ton of opportunities because, because I'm a pastor, but probably I'd say fully a third of these kinds of engagements for me. person has no idea I'm a pastor. Or maybe at the end of the conversation they do. But we're not having the conversation because I'm a pastor. Does that make sense? Praying for divine appointments. Jesus put it this way in John 5. The Father is always at his work. And paraphrasing now, Jesus says, my job is to see what he's doing and join into that work. And friends, for us collectively, that's the way that I want us to measure what it is that we're doing here. I want us to measure it one at a time. I want us to measure it one believer at a time, learning more and more what it is to be present to God, what it is to be present to people. This is the way of Jesus. And as we do that one at a time, the world is transformed. Let's pray together.